0: Hi, and welcome to How to Ruin Dinner. This is your host, Mary Traes, and I'm here with my lovely co-host, Valana.
1: Yep, Valana Dundina Doolin, that is. Yeah,
0: today we got to talk with Dr. Nick Seabrook, and we had a very interesting conversation about the Goldilocks democracy Mm -hmm. that we have, which he explained the originators, the founding fathers, had this idea that they wanted a democracy that was similar to their English system that they knew, um, but not too similar, and they wanted to be able to elect the president, um, but not too much of of a democracy so that um, the, the wild and crazy people... Um, We're not in some way controlled. That's how I understood it. Mm -hmm. You can listen and see what he says for yourself. But just this idea that it was not too hot, not too cold, but just the right amount of democracy.
1: Yeah, the principles of democracy, but, you know, reined in maybe a little. Yeah. Yeah, kept in check.
0: Yeah. So we talked about that, and we also talk about um, some of the ways in which redistricting is done mm-hmm. and gerrymandering. gerrymandering,
1: yep, yep, and independent redistricting, yeah. And the the
0: the, the solution may be independent commissions mm-hmm. to the problem, but that those are very difficult to find or to put in place. This was the way I understood. Yes. Yeah. Him to see that. So we 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 think this is going to this interview is going to fold in very nicely to the other interviews we've had over the past semester, Um, and we do interview many people from the Department of Political Science, of which Nick is the chairman. So I think although we we are circling the same material, um, we have different perspectives and different concerns that
1: I think you'll find interesting. I hope
0: you'll find interesting.
1: Yeah, I mean, I find it interesting. Yeah.
0: I, I find my lack of knowledge a little frightening, and I'm never yeah. quite
1: as, as aware of my ignorance as when we're talking to these experts. I know, me too. And today, you know, as we were both confronted with our lack of knowledge about the Electoral College, and even now... Yeah. Still.
0: Uh, Still. (laughs) Right. So um, bear with us. And I hope you as listeners learn as much as we do. Mm. And remember... All the smart questions are mine, and the not so smart questions are Valana's.
1: Actually, no, she got that mixed up, but it's okay. She <laughs> just flip the names around. And yeah. You got, you got well, it if right. you
0: can tell us apart, you can determine who is
1: who's the smart <laughs> yeah, one. Decide for yourself. Yeah, we appreciate you
0: listening, and we'd love to see any comments you have and any questions you would like us to ask. We have a few more. Um social scientists coming on this mm-hmm. semester, and we're eager to um ask the questions you'd like answered
1: and we hope we hope you ruin some dinners yeah oh yeah we
0: for keep forgetting to ask them how they ruin dinners, but yeah. i 'm sure they ruin lots of them with their yeah. <laughs> with their topic so um d- until next time yep well let 's start with you introducing yourself and your career path and maybe some of the work you're doing right now?
2: Sure. Well, I am Nick Seabrook. I'm professor and chair of the Department of Political Science and Public Administration at UNF. And I would say that I've had a somewhat unusual path to this position um, in that I'm an immigrant to the United States. I spent pretty much the first Half of my life in the UK, where I was born and where I grew up, uh, and when I where I did my undergraduate degree, and the second half here in the United States, pretty much entirely in, in academia. And usually when you have professors at American universities who have come here from other countries, their focus tends to be on either international politics or comparative politics. So it has some kind of um, dimension uh, that, that draws on that background. Whereas I've always, really ever since high school, been primarily fascinated with U.S. politics itself. And I was fortunate enough when I was in high school to take a class on American politics with an absolutely fantastic teacher named Patrick Walsh Atkins, who's been one of my biggest influences in in my career, and really from that moment forward, uh, I sort of fell in love with the with the U.S. political system and its quirks and its unique features, uh, and so that kind of has shaped the the remainder of uh, of my life and and career. I kind of ended up. Um, as a professor and as an American, I became a US citizen uh, last year uh, and hold dual citizenship uh, in the US and, and the UK. Uh, and I kind of became an American and a professor without ever really intending to do either of those things. Uh, I'm one of those academics who kind of went to college um, and liked it so much that they never left. Uh, and I've been on various different university campuses really for the the last 20 20 plus years and uh ended up at at UNF right out of right out of grad school. So my entire career as a professor has been at UNF, has been here in Jacksonville beginning as a uh young and green assistant professor and eventually ending up as department chair.
0: Yeah, well th- that is quite the career and <laughs> The untangling of the American system, political system, um, is hard for us to do, I think, as Americans to do. Although, I don't understand parliamentary systems either, but um, were your parents American? Or you don't have a heavy accent. I,
2: so, I, I kind of think that I have now this weird sort of hybrid, um, which Uh, The accent kind of has incorporated all of the places that that I've lived, from the UK, I spent quite a bit of time in upstate New York, Uh uh, in Buffalo when I was in, in graduate school, uh, and then ending up in here, here in Florida, and I find myself, self saying "y'all" uh, right. every now and then. Uh, but I, it, it's interesting when I talk to someone who has a background in linguistics and really studies accents. They can kind of hear all of those different, places. yeah, places yeah. in in my accent. Every now and then, I have someone who I'll talk to will say, "Oh, are you from the UK, or uh, did you spend time in upstate New York?" Uh, so. Uh, I I do though f- find that I can kind of snap back and forth uh, when I go home when I talk to my right. parents um, the the British part of me comes out a little bit more than it does when when I'm here uh, but actually no both of my parents are, are from the UK uh, grew up there in fact my entire family still still lives there um, but my exposure to the United States as a child really came. Uh, because uh, my dad, who was an attorney, uh, did quite a bit of international work for his firm. And for many, many years, he was the North America representative and worked with clients all over the U.S., was traveling here pretty frequently. Uh, and so we ended up coming to the U.S. pretty often on vacation when, when I was a child. So it, my my. My, my love of America kind of came in stages. It was growing up and being exposed to US media and culture and in terms of movies and TV. Uh, it was traveling here and, and visiting various places in the United States throughout my childhood. And then finally, it was um, the political side of things. It was in high school taking an American politics class. This was all occurring when the 2000 election was happening oh, yeah. between, was an
0: interesting time. between
2: Bush and Gore. And so uh, following everything that was happening with the recounts and uh, and the lawsuits. And really from that point, I kind of knew that, that American politics and American government was what I was interested in. Uh, and I kind of kept studying it until I ran out of degrees that I could earn, uh, and then ended up being a professor.
0: Uh, that it's a very interesting path, and I I do feel like we talked to um, Dr. Lerner and Dr. Frieder about the labyrinthine system that is, especially the judiciary uh, branch of the of the government. Um, and I have to say, I felt very. Uninformed, when she was explaining to us about the appellate courts, and so that's quite an endeavor to jump into, when you are not raised within that system. Um, well, let's let's talk a little bit about your own research, because um, you've you've had you know lots of time now to dig in where where are you in your research and we were just talking about your book that just came out last year maybe you could talk a little bit about that
2: sure so i think having the background that that i've had i've always been drawn to the parts of american politics and government that are that are unique that you don't find in other countries that weren't a feature of the system that I grew up in and one of the major things that I tell students about uh, the UK and they're just flabbergasted out is that the UK does not have a formal written constitution in the way that the US does. It's a political system that is based very heavily on tradition and convention things are done in a particular way because that's the way that they've always been done for hundreds and sometimes even a thousand plus years. Uh, and so um, the, the elements of the US, the things like the electoral college, this kind of weird, uh, weird system that's used to, to choose the president that I was first exposed to in, in high school during the 2000 election. And then when I was in grad school, the, the topic that really caught my interest and which has been the primary focus of my research throughout my career was the drawing of districts yeah. to be used in, in elections, which, um, remarkably enough, is a pretty uncontroversial thing pretty much everywhere else in the world, including the U.K., Whereas in the United States... Can can I just
0: ask you a question there? Sure. Is that because it's done just geographically, like within the boundaries of, you know, a certain mileage that makes sense that they're square? I,
2: I wouldn't say that it's done just geographically, but the most important difference is that it's done independently. Uh Uh, So in the UK, there's an entirely independent agency called the Boundaries Commission, and there's one for England, there's one for Wales, there's one for Scotland, uh, that is completely independent of Parliament, of the House of Commons, of the Prime Minister and the Cabinet, and is kind of just made up of bureaucrats, of of statisticians, of mapmakers, of people who...
0: Seems so logical!
2: Right. Who approach this from kind of the, the goal that you're saying, what makes sense geographically, what makes sense in terms of in terms of communities and um, throughout not just the, the, the countries of the British Commonwealth, uh, but really throughout Europe and, and in almost every other uh, advanced democracy. They've grasped this fundamental idea that the people who are going to be running for election and re-election in districts should not be the ones who are also responsible for drawing those <laughs> so,
0: districts. So is there any chance I mean when you see those districts and how they're drawn and they're just they're just unexplainable. Is there any hope we're going to get in the United States to a more independently selected path or I don't system?
2: I'd say probably the major obstacle Uh, And the major explanation in in terms of why the U.S. hasn't made the changes to redistricting that other nations have is the, the federal system, is the fact that each individual state has responsibility for deciding how their own districts for their state legislatures or for the city council here in Jacksonville get drawn. And the default position, absent any kind of constitutional requirement has been that the state legislature, the state government gets to make those decisions. And once that power is, is vested with an institution that has really strong incentives to hold on to it, that has really strong incentives to, um, to, to use redistricting in a political way, it's incredibly hard to kind of wrestle control of that power away from them. Uh, we have seen that there have been a number of states, including here in Florida, that have taken steps towards reforming the drawing of districts. Uh, our problem here in Florida is that it didn't go go far enough. So um, many people may be familiar with the fair districts amendments that were added to the state constitution back in the 2010 election, um, which essentially... Codified into the Florida Constitution a rule against gerrymandering. And yet, what we've seen for the two decades since then is that governors, members of the state legislature have effectively ignored them, including uh, Governor DeSantis in the most recent redistricting process, where he not only vetoed the map that the legislature had produced, feeling that it didn't go far enough to help Republicans, both uh, in the state legislature, but also particularly in in Congress, um, but seized control of the process and produced what, in my view, is probably the uh, the most egregious gerrymander in in the country. So... The, the lesson I think we can learn from that is that um, you can put legal requirements in place which say that politicians shouldn't use district drawing for political advantage, but that's not going to be effective if they have strong enough incentives to do so anyway. And they want to roll the dice with the state courts or the federal courts and hope that they can, can get away with it. The states that have effectively addressed this problem, and there are a few of them. Most recently, Colorado and Michigan uh, have amended their their state constitutions to create fully independent citizen-led commissions that end up drawing districts. And that ultimately, I think, is the solution. But the problem, of course, is that you have to do that in all 50 states. And some state constitutions are easier to amend than others. Um, It also requires legislation from Congress when it comes to districts for the U.S. House of Representatives. And, of course, we know that Congress uh, is not especially effective at passing legislation either.
0: (laughs) And you just have one political layer after another political layer after another political layer, right? It sounds like at every point there's some political agenda that's going to take priority. Um, and getting an independent group in there sounds almost impossible. Uh, How often can these districts be redrawn? Is it with every new administration? I don't know how that works.
2: So they have to be redrawn at least once per decade um, because there is a constitutional requirement that was established by the Supreme Court back in the 1960s called One Person, One Vote, which was also the title of my most recent book on, uh, on redistricting, which focuses on the history uh, of gerrymandering, going all the way back to the colonial era, the founding era. Uh, and one of the lessons is that this is something that has always been, been happening. It's, it's not a modern phenomenon. It's not something that's unique to the present day. It's been ubiquitous throughout, uh, throughout US history. Uh, it's been something that's, uh, that's always been with us. But since the 1960s, every time we get a new census, every time our population numbers are updated, all of the districts have to be redrawn to make sure that their populations are equal. Um, to leave those districts in place would, would violate the Constitution. And so this practice has kind of put gerrymandering on steroids to an extent. It's become something that happens every decade in every state, sometimes even between the census as well. Uh, so while there's that requirement that it has to happen every two years, there's generally nothing stopping a state legislature or a governor who are sufficiently determined from tinkering with the district boundaries at any point if they feel that they can gain some kind of uh, some kind of advantage for it from it
1: um in the states that have like you were saying, Colorado, I think. Um, has there been a noticeable difference in the way that like, elections happen and, or the way that the political state of those states at post like making that change?
2: Yeah, I think we've seen this happen in uh, both of those states. It's, it's fairly early. So both Colorado and Michigan uh, only put those reforms in place over the last decade. So we've only seen those commissions do one set of districts after the 2020 census, and we've only had one election in which those districts have been have been used so far. But I would say that what sets those states apart, and you can perhaps compare them to a state like Florida, which is kind of viewed as a, as a swing state. Obviously we saw the Republicans do extremely well in the recent election, but Florida is a state that uh, Democrats and Republicans have, have won at the national level, voted for uh, Trump in the two most recent elections, but voted for President Obama uh, in, in both of his campaigns. And yet Florida is a state that has been dominated by Republicans in terms of the state legislature for, for decades now. Whereas the states of Michigan and Colorado are both extremely competitive. If you look at their performance on the national level, you have a fairly even breakdown in terms of representation in Congress. And above all, there's the opportunity for both sides to win if they do sufficiently, perform sufficiently well with, with the voters. Whereas in states that are heavily gerrymandered, like Florida, like Wisconsin, like some other places, um, You don't really have a meaningful opportunity for power to to change hands you effectively have elections that have been rigged in favor of one side or the other no matter how the the people vote so what i see as being the the major virtue of independent redistricting is that it creates an opportunity for for both sides to win as opposed to kind of entrenching one political party in power year after year and sometimes decade after decade.
0: But you can't get there unless you have that competitive groundswell, I guess. Right?
2: Right. And that's that's kind of yeah. the fundamental irony so California's here. California's
0: not, not likely, New York's not likely to initiate this kind of... Well, interest- in- okay.
2: interestingly enough, um, California was kind of the leader in creating these independent citizens commissions. And and California is the only state that's had one in place for now two consecutive decades. But one of the reasons why that happened, it certainly wasn't because the California state legislature, because California is a blue state, Democrats tend to, to control the legislature there it wasn't because the legislature kind of out of the goodness of its heart yeah, decided right. to give up on it uh it was because um activist groups did the hard work collected signatures got an initiative on the ballot to amend the state constitution um, and the voters approved it by a fairly narrow margin it was something like 52 to, to 48 but that initiative was opposed by pretty much all of the Democrats in California. It was opposed by Nancy Pelosi. Uh, it was opposed by uh, the the Democrat majorities in the, in the state legislature. Uh, this is kind of the the what makes solving this problem so intractable. It's because everyone wants to to reform the system while they're losing, but yes. no one wants yes. to do so when they're winning.
0: Well, that's kind of life, right? um, but it, it so the the. These groups of citizens really did make a big difference, um, which is I think reassuring and motivating
2: and yeah, and I think the 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 reason why those types of commissions specifically work is because first they're balanced between Democrats, Republicans, and independents, so you're not going to get a situation where uh, you have 10 out of the 14 are Democrats, and they just do exactly the same kind of thing that a, a democratically controlled state legislature would do. Um, but they're also selected at, at random. So any interested citizen in the state can apply to be a member of this commission. They have to uh, submit references. Um, uh, they have to kind of write a letter as, as to why they're interested in it. But fundamentally, the the actual individuals who end up on the commissions are selected at at random. And they are ordinary citizens. They're not people who are lobbyists. They're not people who work in the state government. They're just interested people who care about this issue uh, and want to, to represent their communities. And that's why I think those systems tend to work better than ones where politicians have some kind of input into who gets chosen right
0: right Um, well let's get to the title of your book then and we'll just go for the simple yes or no do we have one person one vote as a system that honors that idea
2: i I would say that we have one person one vote but there's a lot of shenanigans that can still go on, (laughs) even when pretty much everyone is allowed to participate. So while everyone has a vote, and all votes technically count equally, there are various institutional things that mean that the actual power, the actual influence of an individual vote is not the same. It's the difference of living in a swing state for presidential elections where you see wall-to-wall advertisements on TV during the campaign versus living in a state like New York where I lived for the 2008 election. And neither of the candidates nor the advertisers care about New York because it's always going to go one way or the other. It's the difference between living in a district that was drawn fairly where both sides have a reasonable opportunity of winning versus living in a district that's been gerrymandered so that the outcome is, if not preordained, at least has uh, a pretty sizable thumb on on the scale of democracy.
0: And how does that feed into the Electoral College? I mean, that's where I, I don't know how many times I've read about the Electoral College. And if you ask me, I would fail... Any test, yeah. if you gave me a test on the electoral college, I would probably revert to my high school answer that it had to do with, you know, mm-hmm. balance of state populations. I don't know what corny thing I would come up with, but
2: well, the the electoral college, I think, is fascinating because it's so uniquely American. It was a system that the framers of the Constitution kind of created and devised out of whole cloth because they wanted to avoid both a a British-style parliamentary system where the party that wins a majority in the House of Commons, the leader of that party becomes prime minister and the head of the executive branch. They wanted that separation of powers between the different branches of government. But at the same time, they didn't want a directly elected head of state. They didn't want the president to be chosen by a popular vote. Um, One of the the many ways in which they kind of, um, they liked some democracy, but but not too too much democracy. Um, And so they created this really, really bizarre system where you have this intermediary between the voters and the selection of president. Uh, in the form of these presidential electors who get chosen in their individual states um, and ultimately are the ones who vote and decide who the president will be. And so when you see the, uh, the news coverage talking about electoral votes versus popular votes, those electoral votes actually represent real people, um, people from the state in question, who have been chosen ahead of time to represent a particular candidate. And we've kind of hidden all of this behind the curtain uh, in terms of modern presidential elections. So you go to vote in the 2020 election in the state of Florida, and the names that appear on your ballot are Joe Biden and Donald Trump for president. But what you are actually technically voting for in that situation is a slate of individual presidential electors who have been chosen beforehand and effectively pledged to vote for either Donald Trump or Joe Biden uh, in the actual presidential election, which is the one that occurs when the members of the Electoral College actually, actually vote. So we've kind of tried to add a, a, a veneer of democracy on top of the Electoral College. We've created systems where we tie the way that the individual electors vote to the popular vote in, in, in specific states. So let's say, as happened in 2020, Donald Trump wins the popular vote in the state of Florida. What that really means is that the Trump state of, slate of electors are the ones who get to vote for president from Florida. And they've been selected because they're loyal to, to Donald Trump. They're Republicans. They're political insiders but this is all going on under the hood state by state aggregating together into the electoral vote and the maps of red states and blue states that we see on uh, on our televisions so it's it's a really odd system i think it's telling that in the 200 plus years that it's been in effect not a single other nation has copied the electoral college and incorporated it into their own constitutions
0: i mean is, is, is it? Am I understanding it correctly in that they are obliged to – the electors are obliged to vote for the popular candidate, the, the one the candidate who won by popular vote? Or is that not the case in all states?
2: It's not the case in all states. In fact, it depends on the individual state laws. So in some states, electors are legally required to vote for the candidate who won the popular vote in the state. Um, and they will be removed and replaced with someone else if they fail to, to do so. Uh, in other states, that's not the case. And that leads to a phenomenon known as faithless electors. And this actually happened uh, in a number of places in the 2016 election where you get these kind of quirky individual presidential electors who decide that they're going to vote for someone other than candidate that actually won the popular vote in in their state and there's a long history of these faithless electors usually only a handful of them in any individual election Um, never to the level where they've actually affected an outcome but it's just another one of these kind of strange strange quirks of, of this system that we have
1: what do we have here in Florida
2: that's a good question. Um,
1: <laughs> that's I, never a good answer when somebody starts it with that.
2: I actually, I actually, off the top of my head, don't know um, whether Florida requires presidential electors. There, there's essentially three variations. So either they're required to vote for the candidate who won the popular vote, and they'll be replaced if they don't. They're required, and there's some kind of fine or other punishment that they face if they don't, or they're essentially free agents. Uh, I do know that Florida has not had any faithless electors in right. any of the elections election since I've been here. That would give
0: you the answer. I mean, that is, that is really, um, uh, leaves, see, having just been reading the um, January 6th commission report, mm. it seems like that does leave room for a lot to happen. Um, if you don't have a requirement to vote according to the popular vote. I mean, they weren't successful. But there was certainly a will to overturn the popular vote. And the way I'm understanding this is it could happen if you got enough electors to become free agents.
2: Mm -hmm. And this was actually a... A strategy that was attempted back in 2016. And part of the reason why we saw so many of these faithless electors in 2016 is that there was actually a campaign uh, that was organized. Uh, I believe it was uh, a law professor uh, at Harvard. Uh, It might have been Larry Lessig or uh, possibly one of the other law professors there at, at Harvard Law School who Led this effort to try and convince enough electors to vote for a third-party candidate, uh, and ultimately the person the person that they settled on was uh, Colin Powell, the former uh, Secretary of State under George W. Bush, uh, as kind of a someone who both Republican and Democratic electors might be comfortable supporting if they could be convinced not to vote for, for either Hillary Clinton or, or Donald Trump. And their hope was to convince enough electors to, to break their pledges and support Colin Powell that it would deny Donald Trump a majority in the Electoral College, which then triggers another one of the very, very strange components of this system, which is the contingent election. So <laughs> 270 is the magic number in Electoral College votes. Uh, usually a candidate gets a majority, they become president. If no candidate gets to 270, and we came fairly close to this in, uh, in the 2000 election, there were plausible results that might have led to a tie between George W. Bush and, uh, and Al Gore if Florida had, had gone the other way. Um, But that basically means that the House of Representatives gets to decide who's president uh, as a backup. And so this effort was designed to try and throw the election to the House, create chaos with the ultimate goal of trying to prevent Donald Trump from from being elected president. Obviously, it was unsuccessful. Mm -hmm. They convinced a handful of electors to to switch their votes, but nowhere close to enough to actually have an impact.
0: Wow. I mean, it does seem to depend on individual people committing to a system the of one person one vote or the general idea that the popular vote has to stand and and going back to that 2000 election if al gore hadn't conceded when he did would we have had more chaos and that was that was unbelievable in 2000 i forget how long was it before we had A decision.
2: It wasn't until mid December until until it was decided. It was
0: yeah. I was gonna say months, but I guess six weeks or so, and that was that was a long wait. Mm -hmm. Um, And it seems like you're you're saying that there are these individuals who can cause tremendous chaos, and we're relying on individuals within the system to support the system.
2: Yeah, I think th- this is actually um, a theme that I develop in in my book and and conclude with, but this idea that um, we have a system today, kind of getting back to the, the framers of the Constitution and the idea of a little bit of democracy, but not too much democracy. Um, we've tended to add greater democracy to our political system over the years. It came from The expansion of the franchise, which was originally um, reserved to basically white male property owners uh, during the founding era. Um, We've seen over a series of constitutional amendments, the right to vote um, being expanded to groups that had traditionally been disenfranchised. We've seen the system become more democratic in, in certain ways, allowing voters to uh, amend their state constitutions through popular initiative the um, uh, the election of members of the senate by by the voters as opposed to hmm. to the state legislatures and so I think because that has been the overwhelming direction throughout most of u s history, we kind of assume that that it's an inevitable historical path that, that we've been on. And, that we
0: become more democratic.
2: Right. And that backsliding is not going to, to occur. Whereas the point that I make in my book is that there's there's been nothing inevitable about this. And there's nothing inevitable about our system continuing to be democratic or becoming more democratic we have to work to not only hold on to the gains that that we've made we have to work on those elements of the system that are that are not democratic and it takes a society-wide commitment to democracy, a society-wide commitment to, to the rule of law and to these very, very important norms, to, to get back to your point, these norms that are, that are not codified anywhere, the peaceful transfer of power, the idea that the candidate who, uh, who wins the popular vote in a state should get that state's votes in the electoral college. None of these things are are automatic. None of these things happen by themselves. It requires people to be committed to doing the right thing. And um, one of the things that I've made kind of central to to my career, to my writing, to my to my research, is this idea that that democracy and having a democracy that's that's functional is not the inevitable end point of society. It's something that you have to work on continuously to maintain.
0: Well, then, do you think these last couple of years have been good for us to wake us up? I mean, we certainly never thought about, and I say we like I speak for all Americans, but in general, I don't think people have been concerned with whether or not democracy would would go away. I mean, it was just assumed. So do you think this wake-up call that we've experienced over the last couple of years is good for the, for our democracy.
2: Um, well, I think in some ways, uh, I think it is important to have those wake up calls. If they do in fact wake people up, mm-hmm. um, I'm perhaps a little skeptical to the uh, in terms of the extent to which that message has been communicated and uh, and received. Uh, and it's kind of similar to 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 what I see in in redistricting that it it's fundamentally impossible to separate the desire for your side to win from this broader debate about what is the best way to uh to to govern our society and I think we see this in the context of uh Another issue that is a significant passion of mine, which is free speech and uh, and the First Amendment, that just as it requires a culture of democracy, not just a legal infrastructure of democracy for democracy to survive and thrive, it requires a culture of free speech, not just a First Amendment that protects people's ability to to say what they want. Because for free speech to be meaningful, it has to protect speech that the dominant group in any particular state uh, or any particular area of society finds finds offensive, finds um, objectionable. That's what makes the, the First Amendment the force that it is. And, and I think in the same way that we've seen democratic backsliding, I think we've also seen in our society a tendency to want to censor or punish speech that uh, that offends us, or that we don't agree with, it, rather than fostering a culture of of free speech. And in a lot of a lot of ways, I think this is a product of the overall polarization of our society. The um, the idea that those who disagree with you politically are not just wrong, but they're enemies. They're people who are attempting to destroy the country, destroy the American way of life. Uh, and I think uh, both sides of the spectrum are are susceptible to that, and it's not an it's not an easy problem to fix because once it gets in motion, it kind of reinforces uh, itself over time.
1: Uh, where do you see? What do you see as the role of academia in all of this?
2: So, this has been uh, obviously a major uh, topic of controversy here in Florida recently. Um, with the various actions that have been taken by the governor, by the state legislature, that have either affected or may potentially affect uh, the operation of our of our colleges and universities, and ideally, I see academia as a place that, um, kind of, uh exhibits those elements for the rest of society, um, where freedom of speech is protected to a much greater degree um, than maybe we find elsewhere, and where there's not just, again, a First Amendment and a legal protection of free speech, but uh, a culture of free speech as well. And it's been unfortunate, I think, to see uh, that important role that I think academia plays be undermined both from within and from outside of academia as well. Uh, So I've, uh, in terms of the things that I've been talking about most recently, uh, I have been a significant and outspoken critic of the governor's efforts which I see as undermining academic freedom, particularly things like the Stop Woke Act, which was an attempt to prohibit professors from teaching certain concepts, certain ideas in their classes. I think that is uh, a major problem and uh, it's something that should be, um, should be opposed. But I also think that there has been a tendency within, uh, within academia which, uh, and I certainly don't want to dismiss all of the concerns that get raised by figures like, like Governor DeSantis. It is unfortunately a reality that within academia there is not a great deal of ideological diversity, particularly within certain disciplines and subdisciplines. Now, I would disagree with him on the point that I don't believe professors are attempting to indoctrinate their students into any particular <laughs> worldview. But I do think it's a problem when 90% of academics in a given area are Democrats, or on the left of the, of the political spectrum. I'm very pro-ideological diversity within academia. Um, I also think that we can do more to ensure that individual faculty members not only enjoy the technical legal protections of academic freedom, but also feel free to speak their mind on issues of public concern, to address controversial topics with students, an environment where students feel free to express their views and to discuss these issues without being concerned that that their grade may, may suffer. Uh, and it's been an unfortunate reality uh in academia uh in in recent years that both speech by professors and speech by students has not always been protected to the extent that I think it should be
0: yeah there the, you just you just had a whole lot there, and the echo chamber, I think of the left or or liberal points of view is something that that the academies, universities around the U.S. have been accused of, that there is such a Mm left-leaning liberal position in American universities that even the methodologies of disciplines cannot overcome that bias. and maybe that's true. Maybe that's not. Maybe it's the triumph of of one ideology over another. I, I'm not in a position to say. But um, how do we? Uh, and and Dr. Lerner talked about kind of this veil of, of, of secrecy. Yeah, I was yeah. going to think of another word, but this kind of ivory tower mentality that has in, enclosed the universities to the degree that we don't have to face a lot of questioning. And certainly that that tower is some of the ivies at least being pulled off it. And maybe some of the bricks are coming down with this uh, dialogue, if that's what we're going to call it, uh, between uh, the political body and the university. D- is there some truth to that? Have I described that? Accurately,
2: yeah, I I think so. Uh, I also <clears throat> excuse me. <clears throat> I
0: mean, if we have to account for our positions against people who hold different political ideologies, so if if professors and and uh, the university in general has to take the time to explain why their ideas are correct, will that help? Um, change sort of the the understanding of what the university does are we mischaracterized as too too far left
2: well i think the the data show that um a lot of areas of academia are overwhelmingly made up of people who are on the left of the political spectrum i don't think that's a fact that you can really dispute at this point Uh, where i would push back is the idea that people go into academia in order to promote oh, their yeah. political views. Uh, I, certainly, that's not the reason I went into academia. And I would say that also goes for the vast majority of, of my colleagues as well. That We went into this because we want to, to learn. We want to help contribute to the accumulation of knowledge. And because we want to educate students, to teach them skills, to set them on the path to successful careers. And so we don't approach our job with the idea of convincing students to think a particular thing, whether it's a left uh, idea or a right idea. We approach this with the goal of providing students with the tools to make those decisions for themselves. And UNF is an institution where we have students from all political backgrounds. And uh, I, I've been here for 12 years now. Um, I have not seen nor really heard any evidence of um indoctrination in the way that it gets framed being like an grooming. issue here at you I mean
0: that the even the language shifting it to grooming yeah. is 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 so kind of gross <clears throat> well what about um do you think that that publishing sort of um balances that political left leaning tendency. I mean, it isn't the case that university professors are only speaking within their own institutions. They are, they are writing papers. They are putting it out in the public. Um, or do you think the same problem exists within academic journals, that the committees are also left-leaning and the selection process is also imbalanced ideologically?
2: I do think those things are problems, but what I would also say is that I don't think this kind of decline in trust is something that is unique to to academia. I think we've seen similar and parallel developments in public opinion over the last couple of uh, decades that there has been a decline of trust in institutions more generally, political institutions, academic institutions. Even other institutions religious within institutions, religious institutions l- sure. law enforcement the not military law, yeah uh, basically across our, our society and um, this is kind of a much uh, a much bigger and broader question but it's hard not to conclude that this perhaps has something to do with the decentralization of of the media the rise of social media kind of the uh, the the information environment that we live in being fundamentally different from from previous uh, from previous eras. That uh, instead of getting your your news from uh, from a few TV stations or newspapers that kind of act as as gatekeepers, suddenly we are confronted with essentially unlimited sources of in, of information. And so you kind of develop those those information bubbles that people live in they're only hearing one side of uh, of the debate uh, and we kind of get trapped in in these loops that we that we find ourselves in and academia has been another victim of that that anytime there's a situation where a student gets disciplined for saying something that is politically controversial it spreads across social media every time a faculty member gets investigated for tweeting something that people interpret to be to be racist that gets spread across uh, across social media and the anecdotes end up becoming the narrative as opposed to that narrative being based on the evidence which i think as i've said there's some foundation in but doesn't support the kind of Drastic approaches that's, that have been taken towards uh, higher education reform here in Florida.
0: Yeah. Wow. That that feels like an overwhelming s- sort of wall to climb, right? To, yeah. to get to information that has not been siloed and um, curated for a particular community that is it's going to confirm their bias, their, their point of view, um, and it's hard to break through with a different perspective or even different facts. I mean famously, right, there are these alternative facts that force you or allow you not to reckon with an agreed-upon understanding of events, mm-hmm.
2: I think this is something that we ultimately have to, to try and do as as individuals. And it's something that I've always tried to focus on in my career, to to challenge your own beliefs, to seek out information, to seek out people who disagree with you, who have different perspectives. And often you learn that... The people who disagree with you don't disagree with you because they're evil or they're bad people yeah. or whatever. They disagree with you because they're just coming at the issue from an entirely different perspective, from an entirely and different... Different
0: experiences. And
2: different experiences. And it's productive to try and understand why people disagree with you and to to examine the arguments that they're putting forth, because ultimately that's that's really what academia should be. It should be about this dialogue. It should be about not just an echo chamber, but having our views challenged, having our ideas challenged. This is the way that that knowledge moves forward. If an idea develops, is accepted, and is never really challenged, um, you never really know whether that idea is is correct or incorrect or whether it can stand up to, to that kind of, of, of scrutiny, which is why I've always tried to take that approach in my own research and my own career. But also um, I've always been someone who has made an effort to communicate with the public outside of, of academia. Uh, so I do a lot of media interviews Uh, I do a lot of writing that's not for academic journals. Uh, It's written for uh, either in the form of things like blog posts, uh, posting stuff on social media. But also my book on the history of gerrymandering was not an academic book. It was uh, a book that was published for a general audience that hopefully would be interesting and entertaining to anyone who cared about politics and who wanted to learn about this element of uh, of our political system. And and so I do think that there there is uh, a tendency for academia to be overly siloed and overly insular uh, in some some areas. Uh, I think we have to do the work to communicate what we're doing to the public and to help them understand it, particularly in this information environment that we find ourselves in when academia can so easily be caricatured in the way that that we've seen it being.
0: Well, it sounds like the message is to stay curious,
2: right? Mm-hmm.
0: And that's kind of my hobby horse this semester is um, ask ask questions and be be curious. I I think that's a great place to end. So thank you very much. That was very informative, and I I, I feel like I. No, I that, that would be a lie. I was about to lie. I don't think I could could say what the electoral college is all about, but I appreciate and I'll go back and listen to it till I can get it right. So thanks, Nick. Thank you. Thank you.